0: If you have your Bibles, we'll spend the majority of our time uh, in Nehemiah 11 and 12. I had uh, Wendy read from Psalm 126 because that song was actually written by Ezra. And it comes uh, at the end of chapter 12. Of Nehemiah. So, this is the the kind of the the peak of joy in the book of Nehemiah because everything has been completed. We'll see that the things that they prayed for, the things that they've worked for, everything has come to the point where it's supposed to be. We'll see that the people have a great joy that people from all over the nations hear them as they're singing and they're shouting their, their joy. It's this great time. It's the time we all want. We want this joy that is like a dream, as he says in Psalm 126. This is so good that you have to pinch me to make sure I'm awake. And we see God do this for the people. But what I want to focus on is how chapter 12 is not the end of the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 13 comes, and as we'll see next week, everything falls apart. And so what I want to talk about in this sermon is how God gives us these deliverances in life, and yet you know what happens the next day as we wake up, and we have another day. And then eventually we die. Eventually the deliverances run out. And what, what are we to make of this? And I think we get a, a good answer to this as we look at this text. So what I'm going to do before we talk about that joy in light of, you know, the end coming and this kind of gloom that is constantly found in this world uh, is I want to do an overview of Nehemiah 11 and 12. So you guys know what is there. Uh, my prayer is that you would be able to read this yourself uh, and you would kind of have a, a little grasp on what's going on, because often... Uh, Especially when we come to chapters like 11 and 12, where it's a list of names, we think there's nothing in this chapter for me. But that's not exactly true. So I'm going to give us an overview, uh, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll jump into the topic of the day. Now, in chapter 11 we see a list of the names of the people who would make Jerusalem their permanent home. So these people have all come from slavery, from Babylon, and they've come to rebuild Jerusalem. But a lot of them don't want to stay in Jerusalem. And the reason for this is because they want to go either back to Babylon where their home is, or they want to go back to one of their little villages to rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, the villages that they grew up in. This has been 70 years of slavery. It's been a long time since these villages have been kept up with. It'd be kind of like, let's say Oklahoma was taken into slavery into some state. I don't know. We'll say California. California is nothing like Babylon, is it? And... Uh, so, so we're stuck in California, and uh, you know, Lord Newsom says you guys can go home, and so we're released to go back to Oklahoma. Well, we're all going to go back, and the first thing we're going to rebuild is Oklahoma City, because that's like the Mecca. That's the big thing in Oklahoma. But a lot of us are going to say, okay, after Oklahoma City is built, guess what? We want to go home. We want to go rebuild Woodward. We want to go rebuild Fargo. We want to go back to the land of our ancestors. But if everybody goes back to the land of their ancestors, Jerusalem is left very vulnerable. There's no military presence. There's nobody there uh, in this big city. So they have to have a certain number of people living there. So what they do is kind of like a draft, kind of like we would do for a war. They say one in ten people are going to have to stay and we're going to cast lots. Uh, But first, there are some people who volunteer to stay. The leaders volunteer to stay, which uh, they are to be commended for. And then there are some other people who say, you know what, my family, we're going to stay here. And it says that everybody honored them. And then they go ahead and they cast the lots uh, and they get the one out of ten men who have to stay in the city of Jerusalem. So verses 3 through 24 list the names of the leaders who lived in the city. We then see the other small towns and villages that the people lived in throughout Judea in verses 35 to 36. That's like the Woodwards or the Fargos, the surrounding area. It says in chapter 12 uh, the names of the religious leaders who stayed. And we also get uh, the dedication of the newly built wall. In verses 1 through 11... Uh, it lists the priests and the Levites in the day of Zerubbabel, which you probably don't remember because Zerubbabel was a long time ago. But that's actually at the very beginning of Ezra. That's the first leader who comes to rebuild the temple. Uh, and then, uh, as we continue on, it lists the names of the Levites during the reign of Darius the Persian in verses 22-26. And right before that, it lists the names of the priests in the days of Jehoiakim. That's verses 12-21. And then in verses 27-30, we get some of the details on the dedication of the ceremony. And that leads us to the end of chapter 12, which is the focus of our message. Verses 31-47 in the chapter, by talking about the celebration of joy. It talks about the singers and the offerings that were presented during the celebration. All of this joy can be summed up in verse 43. Chapter 12, verse 43, it says, On that day, this day of great celebration, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and children also celebrated, and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. And the reason for this great joy was that the deliverance from slavery in Babylon had been complete. God promised He would do it. And though they struggled a lot, they had a lot of setbacks along the way, and there was a lot of times they didn't think it was going to work out, God kept His promise. God had delivered them. God had saved them so there was this great joy because everything had been restored. And then we get to the end of chapter 12, and we're not Jewish, and a lot of us don't know the story of the Bible very well because we're not Jewish. We're Gentiles. But if you were a Jew and you read the end of chapter 12, you would know exactly what Ezra was doing when he writes this. He's connecting Israel's current state with their days of glory. He's saying God has put us back in those awesome days, those days of David and Solomon. Look at it with me, verses 45-47. It says they performed the service of their God, that would be the religious professionals, and the service of purification along with the singers and the gatekeepers, as David and his son Solomon had prescribed. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were heads of singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed to the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the daily portions for the Levites. And the Levites set aside daily portions for Aaron's descendants. All is well in Jerusalem. And if it would only end at chapter 12, we could say happily ever after. But unfortunately, this is real life and it doesn't end at chapter 12. So let me pray and we'll talk about this joy. Father God, thank you so much for the deliverances that you provide us. God, we pray and we pray with faith and you show up. God, often you show up when we least expect it. You you heal us when they say we are unhealable. You you allow us to have children when they say that we cannot have children. You, You do all of these things. You break through in marriages that are falling apart. God, you deliver us over and over when we least expect it. And yet, God, sometimes you don't. Sometimes we pray and we have faith, and yet it still falls apart. Things still don't work out. God, we live in a world where we plant seeds of faith, and there appears to be crop failures. God, would you help us understand this through your word? God, we love you. And we praise you and we thank you for that ultimate deliverance we have in Jesus. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. One thing you need to know as you read the Bible is that God loves to save his people. He loves it. He doesn't like do it because we have to twist his arm. No, he loves to hear our laughter. He loves to hear us singing as we have these great joys of deliverance. It's why uh, as Christians, we are known as the singing people. If you go to other countries where Christianity is not known, they know us as the singing people. We're constantly singing. When we are at a funeral, what do we do? We sing. When we're at a wedding, we sing. When we're in church, we sing. Why? Because God has delivered. Us, and it's what we do. And it doesn't matter what happened Monday through Saturday. We show up and in light of the great deliverance that we have, we stand up and we sing together. It's what we do as God's people. and You know what? God loves it. And he loves to give us reasons to sing. He loves to give us reasons to look at his goodness and say, God, you are so good. Our faith has paid off. You are who you said you are. And that's exactly what's going on in this chapter. And the reason for it is because God loves our our relief more than we love our relief. When we pray for God to heal cancer in somebody that we love, and God heals the cancer, we're pretty excited about it. But you know who's even more excited about it? God is excited about it. He loves to hear us laugh. He loves to hear us sing. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote uh, The Lord of the Rings, uh, he made up this word call, called a catastrophe," which is the opposite of a catastrophe. It's when everything seems to be falling apart, but all of a sudden, everything works out. It's an all-of-the-sudden kind of joy, an all-of-the-sudden kind of moment where we thought there was no way, and yet God made a way. And the Bible is just chock-full of stories just like this. You can think of the story of Noah. And his family who were coming out on the ark, on the dry land. Or you can think of Joseph. Joseph is a very interesting story at the end of Genesis. Where he is sold into slavery by his brothers. And he spends multiple years in this prison cell. And then all of a sudden, one day he goes from being in prison to being on the throne next to Pharaoh. You can think of his dad, Jacob. Who after years of being told that his son was dead. Years and years of thinking that his boy had been killed. He then finds out that his son is not only alive, but his son is literally ruling over Egypt. This is the all of the sudden kind of thing that God loves to do. We can think of it as the Israelites in Egypt, as they're in slavery uh, under Pharaoh. And they are a people who are oppressed. And it looks like they're not going to have any way out. And then all of the sudden, what does God do? He splits the Red Sea so that his people can walk through. It's an all of the sudden kind of joy and all of the sudden kind of deliverance that only God can provide. Or we can think of our own story. The Jews who are in Babylon in slavery. And then all of a sudden, King Cyrus, who's not a believer in God, decides. Uh, It looks like he decides. We know from the text that God stirred his heart. But all of a sudden, he says, you guys can go home and rebuild your cities. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. And of course, we see it in the New Testament as well. You can think of Acts 12. When the apostle Peter is in jail, this is one of my favorite stories. It's funny uh, to me uh, because the, the believers are praying for Peter as he's in jail. They're praying, God, would you save Peter? Would you save Peter? And then God does it. He saves Peter. Peter's sitting there and then all of a sudden the jail cell swings open and Peter is escorted out of prison. And I love the story because he shows up to the people who are praying for him. He knocks on the door and they don't believe it's Peter because they are praying for deliverance. But they don't even believe it's happening. They are like those who dream. And this is exactly what God loves to do. He loves to show up when we least expect it. And of course, our biggest example is what we will celebrate on April 9th. Our biggest example is Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ died, his movement died with him. You'll notice in all of the stories of Jesus' resurrection, nobody was waiting outside his tomb. You know, they weren't like, okay, it's the third day, Jesus should rise now. Ten, nine, eight, seven. No. Nobody's there. You know why? They did not expect it. They thought it was over. And in the great moment of despair, what happens? The tomb is moved. Jesus raises from the dead. This is what God does. He loves to do these all of the sudden deliverances for his people. And it leads to us shouting with great joy and singing loudly. This is a you catastrophe, And the Bible is full of these kinds of deliverances. And the people of Israel in our text today had just celebrated another one. They had struggled and struggled and struggled. And they had thought that it was over multiple times. And yet here they are in verse 43. And they're... Worshipping God with great joy. So loud that the surrounding nations hear them worshipping. Why? Because it was an all of the sudden kind of deliverance. And this is why we pray. This is why we should pray expectantly. And when we remain faithful. When all appears to be lost. This is what we should do as Christians. When somebody is sick. You know what we ought to do? We should pray for them. When something's not working out in our lives, we should pray about it. And we should do so with this idea that God is going to show up. We should expect it. And you know why we should expect it? Because God loves to do these things. But we have to be careful. We have to understand that God is not interested in giving us what I would call cotton candy joy. You know, cotton candy is delicious. It's sweet. It's, I mean, it's, just, it's great. But cotton candy is very weak. Uh, You know, if you put a little water on it, it's gone. It'll mess with your blood sugar. It'll mess you up. It's a very temporary kind of impulsive joy. You buy cotton candy. Four year olds love it. And sometimes we eat it and we feel bad about it. But it's it's just it's just right there. It tastes good immediately. But what is it? It's just sugar that will melt away in a second. This is not the kind of joy that God wants to give us. If God wanted to give the Israelites this kind of joy, he could have immediately restored Jerusalem. He could have just touched down and just immediately restored Jerusalem. And yet he doesn't do that. He allows his people to struggle. He allows his people to work it out. And you know why God does that? You know why God doesn't just immediately heal you when you're sick? You know why God allows things to be difficult for us? It's because God wants our joy to be abiding and real. He doesn't want it to be something that we can just say, well, maybe I did that, or maybe it was just luck, or maybe it was coincidence. No, at the end of it, we want to be able to worship God knowing that there was no way it could have happened unless God showed up. See, if if you're freed from prison... It's great. I mean, I'm glad I'm not in prison right now, but if you're arrested and you're not supposed to be in prison and then God swings open the the gates for you to walk out of, I'm a lot more excited about my freedom. If, If I have bread, I am grateful that I have bread. But if I've just been in a famine and all of a sudden bread rains down from the sky, I'm a lot more grateful for that bread. This is exactly what God does and whatever God calls you to do there will be struggles and there will be trials in it because that is actually for your joy. If God calls you to get married to somebody, you can bet that that marriage will be difficult. You will have years and years and days and days where things are not working out. And sometimes you're thinking, I don't know if I want this to work out. I think I might want to leave this marriage. Many, many days you will have like that. And then one day you'll look up and it'll be almost like you're dreaming because you'll be married for 50 years and you look around the table and you'll see grandkids and you'll see kids and you'll say, I can't believe this all happened. And you'll rejoice with God in a way that you wouldn't if it was all rainbows and butterflies. If God calls you to be a parent, you're going to have many days of tears. You're going to have many days of wondering if it's going to work out. You're going to have many days of wondering what has gotten into these children. And and yet, just like a dream, one day, if you remain faithful, God has promised that they will not depart from his path. This is the way that God works. This is the joy that we have. It does not come easy. It is not a cotton candy kind of joy. That's why Psalm 126.5 says this. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Our tears and our joy are connected. We often think our tears, our weeping, our obstacles to our joy. We think they are obstacles to our joy. But in reality, the Bible says they are the way to our joy. There is no resurrection without the cross, friends. I I, want to skip the resurrection. I'd like to go under it, over it, around it. And Jesus says that's not the way it works. There's the cross and then there is the resurrection. It is the pattern of the Bible and it is the pattern of our lives as much as we may hate to admit it. And sometimes, and here's the real hard part for us, sometimes it feels like all we get is the cross. Sometimes it feels like we don't see the resurrection. I said if you raise your children in the right way, you'll end up with them around the table, but you guys all know that that's not always true. We live in a world where sometimes things don't work out. You know, we pray for somebody to be healed and they're not healed. But we live in a world where there are chapter Thirteens. If this would have ended in chapter 12, it would have been a fairy tale, but it's not. And you guys know what happens after your best day. So you take your best day you've ever had. What happened the next day? The sun rose again and you had to get up. And you know, one day you are going to die. And as we see next week in Nehemiah 13, the same happens for the Israelites. Everything falls apart. In fact, I love Psalm 126 verses one through three. It says that they're dreamers. And then in verse four, it's a prayer request for renewed fortunes again. Why? Because every time we are redeemed, eventually we're going to have to be delivered again. Because we live in a fallen world. We sow with tears, and sometimes nothing comes from it. We pray and we pray, and sometimes there is no deliverance. We all have stories like this. You know why? Because we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world with childhood cancer. A world where children sometimes die before their parents. Sometimes grandchildren die before their grandparents We live in a world where there are miscarriages. We live in a world where there is pain, where there is murdering, and where there is a whole bunch of things that just seem to not make sense to us. And statistically speaking, if you want some good news, uh, most of us are going to die younger than what we want to. And all of us are going to die with things left undone, and we're going to leave behind people that we love. And they're going to be hurting because we are no longer with them. And most of us are going to die slow, painful deaths. Welcome to Ascent where I encourage you. (laughs) But it's a fact. It's the truth. Very, very few of us die at 100 years old with our loved ones around us as we doze off into our sleep. It's just not the way it works. God will give us many deliverances in our life, but you guys know how this story ends for you, right? It ends with chapter 13. It ends with you dying. It ends with you being buried in the ground and decaying away. That is where this story ends. Always. So what are we... To make of this, I saw a story uh, on Facebook, uh, a parent posting about their nine year old girl and uh, man, it just hurt my heart so bad. She, she has uh, cancer. They didn't even know she had cancer until uh, November of this last year. Looked healthy, perfectly good nine year old girl. And uh, now they're in their final days with her. She could die at any moment. In just a few months, how much life changes. And you know how many people were praying for that little girl? A lot of people were praying for that little girl. A lot of people were praying for a deliverance. And could God still do it? Absolutely, he could still do it. But you know what? A lot of times God doesn't. And so what are we to make of this? What are we to make of these seemingly weird chapter 13 type moments? Well, I think there's two things. And that's what I want to look at for the rest of our time. Two things that we can think of when we think of chapter 13. Number one is we tend to think of days and weeks, but God works in terms of centuries. We can go back to our uh, Peter example, Peter being released uh, from the prison in uh, Acts chapter 12. Uh, This was a great answer to prayer. Uh, It it was awesome. And yet, you know what I'm certain of? The last time Peter was in prison, he had just as many people, if not more people, praying for him. There was a time in which Peter was in prison, and they were in the house again, and they're saying, God, we know what you did. Last time Peter was in prison, uh, you released him. And and we're going to rejoice when you do it again, God. And yet, Peter doesn't get released. He's let out and he is beaten like his savior was beaten and they take him to the place of crucifixion. And he says, well, I guess if you're going to crucify me, you must do so upside down because I do not deserve to die like my savior died. So they took Peter, they put him on a cross and they turned him upside down. And that's how Peter's life ended. Now, you and I, we know the story. We know what had happened uh, for Peter and for this movement called Christianity. But on that day, you know what? They didn't see anything. All they saw was crop failure. On that day, Peter had no idea what God would do. It looked as if it was just a chapter 13 type moment. But God does not just think about what we see in days and weeks. God's looking at hundreds of years from now. He sees things we cannot see. Can you imagine if we were able to tell Peter while he was on the cross what would happen? That one day there would be a place called the Vatican City worth hundreds of billions of dollars and they would claim that he was their first pope. That there would be people around the world who claimed to have his bones and they charged money to come find his bones. Okay, there was crackling. I thought I was losing my mind. The microphone is broken. Okay, that's good. I thought I'm going to die in front of these people. Uh, (laughs) There might be worse ways to go. Uh, But Peter, you're going to be like one of the most famous people in the history of the world. They're going to have beautiful buildings named after you. Peter would have never saw that. Peter, Peter couldn't believe if we told him that all over the world, the movement you had a hand in founding is now the biggest movement in the entire world and it has completely transformed the way we think about everything. Peter would have never been able to see that. But God did. See, and God knew that the seed sometimes takes longer to bear fruit, but it always bears fruit. And so there might be things in this lifetime we never understand because we have such a limited view. And I don't have a crystal ball. Just because I'm your pastor, I can't tell you what God's going to do with it. Sometimes Blake people say Blake You know, why would God allow this to happen? And honestly, I don't know. You know why? Because I'm in the same world you're in. I have a limited vision. All I can see is days and weeks and sometimes years. But God is looking at thousands of years. God knows what's going to happen 30,000 years from now. He knows what's going on in my life. And he's going to use the suffering that happens in my life in your life. And one day, 30,000, 50,000 years from now, we'll look back and we'll go, Oh, I see what you were doing there. And so this is not actually all that comforting when we're in these moments of despair. But it is important for us to remember of the time frame that God has for us. And that is not a time frame of days and weeks, but of centuries. Now, the the second thing that we must look at as we come to this uh, is that we must understand that the deliverances that God gives us in this life are shadow deliverances. In in other words, they're pointing us forward to the real deliverance, the deliverance that we will have on the day of resurrection, the day in which Jesus returns. We tend to think of it in a different way. The deliverances I mentioned earlier are the sort of thing that God loves to do. The healing of the cancer and uh, the healing of marriages and, and all the things that we pray for. God does indeed love to do those things. He has done it many times, both in scriptural history and in my own life and in your own life. I know that you've seen it. If you've been a follower for Jesus for very long at all, you've seen him do things. You've seen him show up when you thought it was impossible. And he does it often. But in this life, it is not always the case that he will do it each and every time. Some believers really are faithful to the point of death. And sometimes people actually die not in spite of this faith but because of this faith. There are Christians who make enormous sacrifices and do not appear to have been delivered at all in this life. Some people live lives like Job. You know, I think of uh, the first pastor I served under when I was a youth pastor, first Baptist Shattuck. uh, My pastor was Kenny Platt. And a godly man, just super awesome man to be around and yet it was just like Everything that could go wrong in his life seemed to go wrong. Uh, he's a pastor of two churches, two churches that he pastored burnt down, literally had a fire and burned down. The odds of it happened to you once is terrible, but it happened to him twice. Uh, he lost two sons. I can't imagine losing one child. I look at my daughter now. I've only known her for five months, and I can't imagine the pain that I would feel if losing her, and he's lost two of his children. And here's a man who's given his life to the work of God, faithful, and yet everything is falling apart around him. And this happens in life from time to time. Why is this? You know, God can heal you physically, but you are still going to die. There's a story in uh, John chapter 10 or 11 rather, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And then we're not really told what happens to Lazarus, but you know what happens to Lazarus after that? He died again. God can show up and heal your marriage, but it will still end. You know, one day all of our marriages are going to end. Either our spouse is going to die or we're going to die before them. We spend all this time with them. They become our best friends. And at the end of life, what happens? Well, very rarely is it the notebook where you die together. <laughs> that just doesn't happen. It, it, it's going to end either now or later, but it's, it's eventually going to end. The sun may rise in the darkness of your life, but it will eventually set again. What are we to make of this reality? I, I like what Doug Wilson says. He says, we are tempted to think that deliverances in this life are the real thing. While our final and ultimate deliverance, that's the resurrection of the dead. The, the day in which Jesus comes back. We tend to think of that as pie in the sky. But, in the other, but it is the other way around. There is a place where absolutely every believer will come. And will be like those who dream. So these are the shadow salvations. And that is the final reality. When God delivers his people in this life, as he often does, it is just a foretaste. God is whetting the appetite. What is to come If the band wants to go ahead and come forward I'm getting close to closing here But what Doug is saying Is he's saying oftentimes we get it backwards You'll hear a lot of sermons on Easter If you hear Easter sermons What a lot of them are is Jesus Christ rose from the dead And you have that power And so these things can happen in your life as well And that is actually very true like, uh, Jesus Christ rose from the dead so your marriage can rise from the dead. Or, you, you know, you, you, whatever you need done, that power is within you and it can help you now. And what we often do is we look at the resurrection of Jesus and we look at that as hope for right now in this life. But in reality, what we should do is look at the few kind of instances of deliverance in this life and let those point forward to the resurrection that is to come. See, friends, we should not expect actually any deliverances in this life. The fact that any good thing happens in this world should be a reason for rejoicing. Because this world without God is meaningless. We are all headed to the grave one way or another. And I tell you this because I don't want you to have a cotton candy kind of joy where you show up on Sundays and you think, oh, God's going to make my life so much better and everything's going to go great if I'm a Christian. If I give money, if I show up to the church, if if I sing songs, God will surely bless me. Because if you have that kind of faith, you're not going to survive. Because the storms will come. And eventually a storm will overtake you. And to the people who don't believe... When we're at your funeral and we're singing praises, they're going to think we're weird because they're going to say, do you guys not see? They're dead. There is no hope left for them. Your God didn't work. He didn't heal them. They're gone. Their skin and their flesh is going to decay. And if you have the kind of faith that says everything should be good and God should always deliver you in this life, it's not going to be enough. But what we should have is the kind of faith that says when we put this person in the ground, they're actually not there because they're with Christ Jesus. And this body is a seed that as it goes into the ground is going to come up and it's going to be a new body and it's going to be better than the body they had. And when they say, you crazy Christians, how can you believe this? We say, because it's already happened before the first fruits of this resurrection were Jesus Christ who died and went into the tomb. And three days later, he rose again and he has promised he's coming back. And when he comes back, there's going to be a lot of tombs that are shaking because there's going to be a lot of movement and a lot of people are going to come and God is going to do what only God can do. He's going to take our dry bones and he's going to put them together and he's going to build us into new people and a new creation. And so as Christians, when we lament, when we cry, when we pray for people to come uh, to have deliverance, to be saved from whatever it is that's ailing them, and it doesn't work out, you know what? We still rejoice because our rejoicing is not what happens in this life. That's just the appetizer. No, our rejoicing is in what is coming through Christ Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you so much for everybody who is here today. God, I don't believe it's an accident. God, I don't know what's going on in the lives of these people. But God, I pray that they are encouraged, Lord, in their ultimate deliverance that will come on that day of resurrection. God, we thank you for the chapter 12 moments. We rejoice in them. We praise you for them. But God, let us never forget chapter 13. Let us never forget that our ultimate deliverance is not in this life, but in the one that is to come. And friends, if you would, with your eyes closed, head bowed, just think about 10 seconds and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father God, we await that day in which Jesus returns. Our bodies are resurrected in a new world with no pain or sickness. A world where you are ever present with us, God. A world that is so great, we'll have to pinch ourselves to believe it is true. Until then, God, would you give us the courage to obey you and what you've called us to do. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. And uh, if I can, have my ushers come forward. We'll take uh, our offering at this time. And then we're going to sing praises to God. Uh, In chapter 12, verse 43, it tells us... Uh, that the people offer great sacrifices of joy. And that's what we ought to do. Every time we give, we give out of joy. If you're giving out of compulsion or because you feel like you have to or because you feel like you're getting something for your giving, don't give. Bible says we don't want it. It's out of joy. It's, oh my gosh, God, you are so good. I've got to show you how good you are. Let me open up my, my money that I have. It's not much, but it's what I have, God, and so I'm giving it to you. That's the kind of giving that we ought to give. So I'm going to pray over our offering, and then they're going to do that. And while they're doing that, Zach's going to keep playing the guitar so you can reflect upon the goodness of God. And when the offering's finished, you'll stand up and you'll sing praises to this God. Father, thank you so much for all that you've given us. May we now return it back to you. God, it is a seed that we are planting in your kingdom, and we expect an eternal harvest. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.